As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to, um, to pray, to pray with me. Father, we come now for instruction, to, to learn from you. So I pray that you would help us, give us grace uh, to understand as you uh, give light to this passage we'll read. Father, give us grace that we might receive strength uh, to live as you have called us to live. Thank you that we are forgiven in our Lord Jesus, that we're accepted by you. Uh, We know that that came not because of anything commendable within us, but came uh, from you, the one who is merciful and gracious. And so, Father, we claim nothing for ourselves, uh, claim only Christ. So help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Second uh, Timothy in chapter 2. I want to re- read, as I've read uh, recently, uh, verse 14 uh, through the end of that chapter. We'll actually, hopefully, finish it this week. Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, please. Hear the word of God. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use set apart as holy useful to the master of the house ready for every good work so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness faith love and peace along with those who call on the lord from a pure heart have nothing to do with foolish ignorant controversies you know that they breed quarrels and the lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone able to teach patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness god may perhaps Grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. It's those last couple of sentences, verses, that I want to pick up today, beginning with really verse 23, and really ask the question, how is it that we deal with those who oppose us? How is it that we deal with those who oppose us. Um, Timothy had that situation, as you know if you've been with us, that uh, Paul writes these two letters to Timothy, this pastor, young pastor in the church in Ephesus, and there's some opposition uh, to the gospel there. It's a pagan city, Ephesus. It has a, a great temple to a pagan goddess, and it's known for that. People come on pilgrimage to Ephesus to, to go to that uh, pagan temple that's infiltrated, if you will, that, that culture. And even though the church has begun and Timothy is there pastoring, you can get a sense that, that, that what is true in the culture has, has penetrated some in the church. And there are those who are first teaching that which is false. You may remember all the way back in First Timothy in, in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says to Timothy, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And so you, there's some doctrinal error going on there that's significant. Uh, we don't know exactly what that is, but, uh, but it's happening. And so Timothy is the pastor there's charged to correct that. Paul goes on to say in this same opening lines to him, he says, nor devote... Um, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. And so you get the sense, too, that there's a lot of speculating going on. That is to say that there's a lot of discussion uh, about that which the Scripture doesn't nail down. There's a lot of discussion about that. 
and speculation about that and, and, and doctrines being developed about that in, in this particular church. And Paul is saying to Timothy, be careful, stick to the gospel that you received from the apostles. Don't take it beyond what uh, we meant it for. So be careful about creating a whole list of other rules and that kind of thing that the scripture doesn't speak to specifically. In chapter 6 of 1 Timothy and verse um, 3, Paul says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. He's saying, listen, what happens with this false teaching is that it doesn't lead to godliness, that is, it leads to ungodliness, and you have a church filled with people who are, who are envious, who have dissension that is that is quarrels among each other they're fractions in the church they they slander other teachers they slander each other they they have evil suspicions they wonder about each other oh this person doesn't hold my little pet doctrine are they really christians this person isn't speculating about the resurrection the way i am are they really believers this person isn't acting the way that i think they ought to act are they really believers uh, there's constant friction among these, these people. And, and so he says, this is just going to destroy the church. So be careful in all of that. And so even in this passage in, that I read from Second Timothy in chapter 2, uh, Paul says, remind them of these things and, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good. Now, words are important, obviously, in the faith, and, and there's words that are significant and words that we hang on to and, and words that, 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 that we, we stick to and we say, this word means that and it can't mean any other and all of that because, you see, what we believe about this plan of God to reconcile human beings to himself is crucial, so we have to get that right. So when Paul is saying, quoting about words, that is to make them say what they're not saying, to speculate about them, take them beyond their meaning. He says that doesn't do any good. It only ruins the hearers. So, so make sure, Timothy, as, as one who leads this congregation of people, make sure that you're doing your best to, to present yourself to God, approved one who, who really understands the word of truth. So, Timothy, you and the leaders of the church and the people in the church are going to have to avoid irreverent babble. It's not a very complimentary thing for what's going on there because that's going to lead people to more and more ungodliness. It's going to spread like gangrene. It's going to cause people, as the leaders of this movement have, to swerve from the truth. It's going to upset, overturn, if you will, um, their faith. So he says, be, be careful about that, you see. It's interesting in the midst of churches, that even though we're saved by grace, we really like rules. We like to nail it down. We like to make rules about all kinds of things that the scripture leads us in and gives us information about and, 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 and so forth. But, but we like rules. And so we have rules about drinking and we have rules about vocational callings, especially for women. And can they work outside of the home? And, and, and we have all of these kinds of rules about dress and, 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 and if you're really a Christian you'll dress like this and, and, uh, and, and about the movies we see and you know all of these you know uh, you don't dance or drink or hang out with people who think that's not right uh, I don't know you know what I mean but, but uh, rhymes anyway uh, so all these kinds of things that we point to or spiritual gifts well if you're not gifted in this way are you really a Christian because this is what really really marks out a Christian or, or views of the end times if you're not shaking your boots thinking that Jesus is going to return the next minute or predicting something and all of that then, 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 then you see you really are you do you really believe you just see how it infiltrates just there's false doctrine that has to be dealt with and dealt with forthrightly but there's all these other things you see good friend of mine reminds us all the time he says bill you know we're all recovering pharisees right he says that's that's really the nature of us and 
And, and you know the nature of the Pharisees, Jesus said of them that they, they like to bind people and put rules on them, rules that they don't follow themselves, but rules that they judge everybody else by. And you get the sense in the context of Ephesus, not only were these false teachers, no doubt, but there was all this speculation going on about this and that and the other thing, and what it really means to be a Christian. And Paul's saying, that will kill you. Those will kill you. So, so there's freedom in these areas. Yes, these decisions about who works and how much we work and how we dress and what movies we watch, that was a big issue, I'm sure, in Ephesus, what movies they went to. But um, whether we drink or how we school our children and those kinds of things. Yes, they're important and we have to think through them biblically. But it's also true that people may come to different views there, different decisions there. And if we have one particular way, because we're speculating, we're babbling, we have this knowledge, as he ends his first epistle with it, that really isn't knowledge from God. And you see, we're binding people into things that, that really, really aren't helpful. But what it leads to isn't godliness, but ungodliness. It doesn't, it doesn't enhance our worship together, but, but breaks us up into factions. And he says, be careful, be cautious about all those things. So the question then is, how do we deal with people who are different than we are in the context of the church, in the life of the church. First, first, those even who are teaching that which is false, how do we deal with them? How do we understand that? How do we approach that? How do we come to them? How do we deal in the context of our life together uh, when we disagree about these particular lifestyle rules, perhaps, that we may put together? So how do we do that? How do we do that so that we don't find ourselves slandering? We don't find ourselves gossiping. We don't find ourselves uh, thinking the worst of one another. We don't find ourselves being puffed up and self-righteous and think that we're right and everybody else is wrong. Well, Paul gives Timothy, he's already given him um, a few ways to deal with that. One, he, he writes to him, as we just mentioned in the first epistle, very forthrightly, and he says, if there are those teaching a false doctrine, you must charge them not to do that. Just go to them and deal with that because that will destroy the church. Secondly, we saw a couple of weeks ago in verse 22, he tells Timothy that you need to flee youthful passions. In other words, you see, there's something about being young. We're all young, aren't we? Uh, there's something about that that causes us, you see, to, to get more embroiled in these unimportant matters. That if we get embroiled in these unimportant matters, can be detrimental to the whole. So he says, put those aside. See, these youthful passions when you're young, you have this great propensity to desire to be right about everything. Not only that, you actually think that you're right about everything. Because you've worked it out. You've got the notes. All right? You've got it right about everything. And if, if life were only like this, then it would be just right. But then you'd live that for a while. But you see, you have difficulties because it doesn't always work out quite that way. Does it? I'd like to be right. And you miss then if you're right and everybody else is wrong. If you're right, then, then you see, you, you miss the wisdom of others. You miss the nuances of things. Oh, they might be wrong about some things, but they're not wrong about everything. And, and so you, you miss the nuances that come from their lives that are necessary for your life. And you miss the very point that God gives us people to rub up against who aren't like us to mature us. You have to be right about everything. And your ego then is tied up in the rightness of it. Oh, that's very detrimental, you see, in the life of the church. How, how, do, you, how do you, so flee that, right? Flee that. And when, when, you're, when you're young, there's this, this real desire for that which is new and that which is novel. The, the ordinariness of life isn't very exciting. Well, you're right about that. <laughs> but it's life. And then when you're young, you think, oh, it shouldn't be like this. It should all be mountaintop. It should all be great. It should all be spectacular. And so, 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 so this ordinary life thing that I, I see happening in the life of the church, that must be wrong. We, we have to change all of this. We've got the way it has to be, the way it's going to be. I have a vision. See, I love the scripture that says, young men see visions. Old men dream dreams. <laughs> I assume a dream is a vision that you have while you're asleep, which is what happens with old men. 
You say, I, I know how it ought to be. And so the new and the novel, you miss the point of the preacher. It's one Ecclesiastes who said, there's really nothing new under the sun. The one certainty that you can have in the life of the church, if you've just thought it up, somebody else did too. There's really nothing new under the sun. And so flee that. Flee, flee having to, to have it new and, and, and novel, that kind of thing, you say. Right. So flee these youthful kinds of passions, Paul says. Paul, we could go through a whole list of them as we did the other day. But this third thing now. And then he says, pursue righteousness. Because, because righteousness, faith, and love, and peace, you've got to pursue them because they don't come naturally. And so pursue doing that which is really right, not from your eyes, but from God's eyes. Pursue real faith, loyalty to God and to one another. Pursue real love that requires sacrifice. And the sacrifice of your own, your own agenda and your own life, if you would, to sacrifice. And pursue real peace as far as it depends upon you to be at peace with, with everybody. In the context of the life of the church, that too requires sacrifice. But then finally this, and this would be today. Finally this, I believe he says, that we must follow the example of Jesus. And I get that because he uses this expression, Paul does, and then goes on to describe the one who fits this expression and the description of both is Jesus. He says, verse 24, and the Lord's servant. Now, that expression, the Lord's servant and the servant of the Lord, is, is used often in the scripture. It's used in the Old Testament of Moses and David and Joshua and the prophets. It's used of the nation of Israel. It's used in the New Testament. Paul uses it of himself. He calls himself the servant of the Lord. James uses it of himself. Peter uses it of himself. In some sense, it fits all of us. We're all to be servants of the Lord. But in a very technical way, it's used in the Old Testament, most especially by the prophet Isaiah of the Messiah, of Jesus and the reason that when I read that, the reason when others read that, bells and whistles go off and say, really, Timothy has in mind, I mean, Paul has in mind Jesus here as the example for Timothy, example for the church, as the example for us. The reason that bells and whistles go off and point in that direction, shout in that direction, is because the very nature of how Paul describes where to live, to live in the midst of the op opposition, is exactly the way that the servant of the Lord, Jesus, the Messiah, is said to live by the prophet Isaiah. And so you see, in order to deal with those who oppose us, whether it's those who are teaching that which is false, whether it's those just in our midst who are different and, and perhaps a bit judgmental and even slanderous and gossiping towards us, however that might be, how do we deal with that in the midst of the life of the church where we follow the example of Jesus? And those of you who know me well and are close to me in some ways where I can... Or I might say some things I might not say in other quarters. No, I'm going to say it to everybody. That I, I never was one who was very thrilled about the what would Jesus do movement. Now, uh, part of that is because I'm not really into fads. Uh, I don't like the tote bags or the journals or the coffee mugs or... All of that to go along with that. I usually can't afford that. But, 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 but I'm just... Because you see, once you get into those things, if you do, then you have to reinvent yourself the next week. And after that goes out, which it hasn't. And, 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 and then you end up going back to reading the Bible, praying and loving each other, which is really uh, what we do anyway. So it saves us a lot of time and money if we just avoid some of those things. Plus, I never liked the question, really, what would Jesus do? I really like the better question, I think which is what did Jesus do, see? Because that, that captures two things, one of which Paul wants to capture, and one of which the what would Jesus do folks wanted to capture uh, as well. The, the, the one thing that it captures, uh, what would Jesus do, what did Jesus do, the, the one thing that it captures is this example of Jesus, that we're to follow his example. What would he do? That was, I think, the thought process that we were to have that, that little movement with the band uh, bracelets and so forth. But see, what did Jesus do captures that as well, obviously, because we look at his example. What, what did he do? 
And Jesus understands this, that we're to follow his example. In fact, uh, he put it uh, as well like that himself on the night that he was betrayed. In John chapter 13, we read this of Jesus. John writes, when he had washed their feet and put his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? It is after he washed their feet. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, nor as a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus said, I've given you an example. I want you to follow that example. Of course, some of the church, some in the church historically have said that this is a third sacrament that we have to do foot washing. We don't do that. The reason we don't is because we don't have any illustration, any example of foot washing in the New Testament. For those foot washers, bless you. Um, but we don't do that uh, in the context of the life of church, most don't because there's no good example of churches actually doing that. But, but, but we would all agree, foot washers and none, that the real point here is that we're to serve one another. We're to be humble and to serve each other. And so that's the example of Jesus, you see. That's what Jesus did. He loved and served. So what are we to do? We're to love and serve as Jesus did and even be humble in the midst of that as Jesus did in this occasion where he took the lowest place at least in that context that of a servant and wash their feet he would take a lower point even still on the cross as criminal under the wrath of God forsaken for us he says oh that's what I did follow my example now we have to be careful that we don't simply talk about following Jesus example because he's more than our example you know that He is our example. He's not less, but he's certainly more. And it's the more that's first and foremost important in that. Because you see, what Jesus did was to do what we can't do for ourselves. And that's the important part of it. If we're just thinking about what would Jesus do, and that's what people understand about Christianity, then we have nothing more than a a religious moralism. Right? We're always just worried about what Jesus would do and have us do. And, and so we do that. And if we do that, then we're fine. But we know that isn't the gospel. Well, that's a derivative of it. That, 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 that's something that comes out of it. That yes, once we're reconciled to God, filled with His Spirit, know His Word, then, then we're to live in such a way that pleases Him. Yes, but, but we don't begin there. We begin with what Jesus did for us. That's really the point of it, isn't it? That's really the gospel of it. So we have to be careful always when we speak of Jesus as example that we're not giving the impression that this is a religion that's moralistic. That is to say that if we just do it right, then we're right. No, because Jesus came and did that which we could not do for ourselves. He obeyed, and we haven't. And he took the penalty for our sin. Which if we take the penalty for our sin would mean we'd never know eternal life. We'd only know eternal death. And so if we take the punishment for our own sin, we never get out of it. And so the great news of the gospel is what did Jesus do? He lived and died for us. And then what did Jesus do? That is to say, how did he live? Now follow that. Why? Because he in his humanity perfectly imaged God. And that's who we're to be, those who image God. We're created in the image of God. We're created to reflect him. Jesus did that perfectly so we can learn that from him. But here's how it goes. We we see Jesus' life, the way that he lived And the first thing that happens isn't for me to rush out and say, oh, good, I can do that. The first thing that happens when I see the life of Jesus is to go, wow, I'm in trouble. If that's what it means to be a man, then I'm in trouble. I see his compassion. I see my lack. I see his wisdom. I see my lack. I see his love, I see my lack. And so it drives me to my knees. 
which I can go to my knees with confidence because I know what he did, which is die for me. So I can be forgiven. I get up from my knees through confessing and repenting. Again, you can see our worship service in the midst of this as we rehearse our, the gospel, really, every Sunday. And so, so I get up from my knees and I say, fill me with your spirit that I may live. And then I ask myself the question, well, how should I live? And the answer comes, look at Jesus. So that's where we are now. But we mustn't miss what Jesus did to die for us and live for us and what Jesus did. So we can know his example. So Paul says, this is what Jesus did. Isaiah chapter 42, quickly. I'm going to look at two of what are often referred to as the suffering servant songs in Isaiah. If you've been with us for a decade or two, you know that I've preached from these during Advent a couple of times. Isaiah chapter 42, this is the prophet speaking of one who is to come. It says, behold my servant. Now, what I want us to see here is what does it mean for Jesus thus What does it mean for us to be the Lord's servant? When Timothy was being instructed by Paul, as the Lord's servant, here's how you're to live. What did Timothy get from that? And why did Paul say about the Lord's servant what he said? I think we'll find that here. Chapter 42, verse 1, Paul writes, Behold my servant whom I uphold. The first thing we realize is that, as I mentioned during our offering time, servanting, when we're servants of God, is a different kind of servanting than any other kind of servanting. Because usually if you're the servant to a master, it means you serve your master's needs. It means you meet your master's needs. Our master has no needs. When we serve God, it's all about him. That is to say, we're completely dependent upon him. Our our servanting is from God, from beginning to end. He says, my servant whom I uphold. That is to say, we get everything from our master. That's rather odd, isn't it, for a servant? Usually the servants give everything to their master. But this servant, he says, I uphold you. I hold you up so you won't fall. If I don't hold you up, you'll fall. You can't serve me if I don't hold you up. My chosen, ah, that is to say, he even chooses those who serve him. He's the initiator of all of it. And in a mysterious kind of way, he's the one who chooses. He chose his own son to come. And as we know, he's chosen us to be his. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has chosen us in him before the foundations of the world. And we just sort of suck air when we hear that stuff. But it's true. And so we read that our serving of God is his doing from beginning to end. He's the one who chooses and upholds and makes his servants. We're utterly dependent upon him. If that isn't true, that is to say, if he doesn't uphold us, if he doesn't choose us, then we'll fail. And then he says, I've put my spirit upon him, which he did, of course, in Jesus. Jesus was, again, mysteriously, as the Son of God, utterly dependent upon the Spirit of God for leading, for wisdom, for power. We saw the Spirit of God upon Jesus at his baptism. We know that the Spirit led him. After his baptism, the Scripture says of Jesus that the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's a little word to all of us. When we desire to be led by the Spirit, (laughs) understand he takes us places that can be quite difficult. He doesn't leave us alone, but he stays with us as he did with Jesus. The Spirit was upon him. It doesn't surprise us that after Jesus went through that experience of being tempted by the devil, having been led there by the Holy Spirit, he comes back and in the midst of a synagogue he says this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind to set at liberty those are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and, and so the Spirit is upon him. The Spirit is upon every servant of the Lord. 
to know that. As the one who believes, it means that you've been chosen by God. It means that you're upheld by Him. It means that His Spirit is upon you. Notice the work of Jesus. He'll bring forth justice to the nations. That is, he'll bring righteousness. He'll bring the very rule of God to the nations. The very kingdom of God. He'll bring the very rule of God to the nations. How does he do that? Notice. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. That is to say, he isn't shouting at people. See, Jesus walking down the street is not with his fist raised. He's not carrying a big sign that says turn or burn, right? He's just walking down the street humbly, but with great confidence. Where's his confidence? In whom is his confidence? His confidence is in his father. He knows that. That's meekness, by the way. One who can be quiet, yet confident. Notice his, his style, if you will, his life. It says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He says, listen, those who are bruised, it's a Hebrew idiom, those who are bruised that is discouraged, about to break. You know what a bruised reed looks like in the field? You know that if you brush by it, it'll break because it's bruised, it's about to go. It says of Jesus He'll take that bruised reed and he won't break it. That's his gentleness. That, 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 that smoldering wick, that faintly burning wick, he'll blow on it, but it won't go out. It'll be burst forth into flame. The bruised reed he won't break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench, he'll faithfully bring forth justice. Now he himself will not grow faint or be discouraged until all this work is done, until he's established it. That's the point. He says, I want you to be like that. Chapter 50, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. Another of these servant passages. The servant is announced later in this passage. But let me pick this up. The Lord God has given me a tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. See, that's his, his MO, if you will. First, he's taught by his father. Remember, Jesus said very often, he says, I only say the things I've heard my father say. And so you see, the servant of the world is, Lord is one who is taught by God, who is one who goes to the word of God, who knows it. That's, that's what's in his mind, Paul says, that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And how is that renewal, how does that renewal take place? It takes place by us knowing the word of God. It isn't that we have some kind of sixth sense where, where God speaks to us in that spirit part of us or whatever. It's that we have this word of God that he's given to us and we learn it and we think of it. And yes, the spirit helps us in the midst of that, mostly to help us overcome our unbelief mostly to overcome our resistance to it, to free us from the bondage of, of the rebellion of sin that says no to the word of God. And, and the Spirit comes, you see, and, and, and takes that away by new life in us. And so that we read and we, it isn't hard. We just say, yes. I mean, hard to understand. We say, yes, that's true. I believe that. So true of Jesus, true of the servant of the Lord. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught. And, and, and notice the kind of tongue that he has. So unlike the tongue that I have at times. He says that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Don't you long for that? Don't you long to be able to turn to your spouse when he or she is weary and give a word that sustains as opposed to a word that makes them more weary? Or to your children or to your friends, or as we shall see, to those who oppose us. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord has opened my ears. Again, to be the servant of the Lord means 
He's the one who's freed our ears. He's the one who's opened our ears. And I wasn't rebellious. I turned my back. Why weren't we rebellious? Because he opened my ears. He did it. And notice how Jesus, for him, the sacrifice made. He says, I gave my back to those who, stri- who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. You recognize this of all from his crucifixion. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord... God helps me. Therefore, I've not been distressed. Therefore, I've set my face like flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He says, how can he do all of this? Because he trusts his father. You remember how it is that the apostle Peter puts it in 1 Peter in chapter 2. Peter is speaking to, to, to slaves who are being treated unjustly. And so he says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For there's a grace, this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That, you see, the trust of it. That's the Jesus of it. He stood before his accusers, and his trust wasn't in even himself, we could say. And it certainly wasn't in their turnaround. It wasn't in debate. It was, it was in his father, because he knows that his father is the one who judges justly. And, and so for the servant of the Lord in the midst of opposition, regardless of what's coming to us, always in our minds is whatever they're saying, whatever lies are out there, whatever untruth is there, I know God, and he knows me, and I belong to him, and he'll vindicate me. The reading we read from Philippians chapter 2. You remember just a little while ago we read it. The very end of it. The day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now that doesn't mean the salvation of all people. It simply means the recognition of who Jesus is. For us, as believers, we recognize him as Lord over life and death, and thus we receive his grace and are forgiven and and enter into eternal glory with him. For those who don't believe, they recognize him as judge, and their doom is sealed because he's the Lord. But, But all will know, and they'll know that we know that they know that we know that he, we, had truth. That's always in our mind, you see. It was always in the mind. Always in the mind of Jesus. The Lord helps him and the Lord helps us. Verse 9. Behold, verse 8. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who's my adversary? Let him come near to me. If God is for us, you see. You know that text. Who can be against us? Behold, the Lord helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. It may take a while. Garments wear out over time. Moths are slow when they're chewing. But it will happen. So, how are we to respond? Notice how Paul writes to Timothy. It says, all right, Timothy, then, as the, Lord, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. That doesn't mean you can't speak truth. It just means that you don't get into petty arguments about it because you've fled youthful passions. You don't have to be right. It's not about you being right anyway. It's about the truth. Be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. That doesn't mean overlooking evil, but it means being patient with this evil that's coming towards you. How can you be patient when there's evil coming towards you? Because you trust the one who judges justly. Because you know him. He'll vindicate. It's in his hands. He will help you. And then he says, correcting his opponents with gentleness. With gentleness, you see, being one who, who, who touches a bruised reed and doesn't break it. Who comes into these discussions not to destroy, but to heal, to bring repentance, if you will, to bring restoration, but, but not to break all of this. And, and then he, he, he says all of this by saying, 
ends all of this by saying with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You see, it's in that peace that seals it, at least for me. Because that peace causes me to think not so much first of them, but to think so much first of me. Because if it's God who brings to repentance, who brought me to repentance? If they were under the snare of the devil doing his will, wasn't I? And and why am I no longer? And that's when I realized, oh, I haven't anything on these people. I'm no different. The only difference is that God has brought me to repentance. He's broken the snare. He's broken the bondage of the devil. How can I be uppity? How can I be self-righteous? How can I be arrogant in the midst of that? It's all right. When they oppose you, relax. Be patient. God is with you. He'll vindicate, parenthetically, maybe not in this lifetime, okay? I want to set your expectations falsely. They may kill you, by the way, but, but relax. God will vindicate for all eternity. Trust him. Be gentle. Desire to speak a word that blesses, not curses. We have a picture of this. The humility of Jesus. If anybody had the right to scream and judge, it was the Lord Jesus. But he was quiet And gentle. If anybody had the right for others to bow at his feet and worship him, it was Jesus yet. He took off his He took off his outer garments and he dressed himself like a servant. He says, That's how I want you to be. And that seemed like it would be, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the lowest of the low to look like that, but, 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 but that wasn't the half of it because he went lower as he was raised on a cross to be despised by everyone who walked by. And he says, I can do that because I know my father. So you can do this because you know my father. Be gentle. Be humble not self-righteous. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And you see the other humility in that, to give himself for those who were sinners, he the perfect one. They below him, he right, they wrong. He says, no, I'll give same way he took the cup again after giving thanks. He gave this too to his disciples. And this he gave to them. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. What do we remember? Remember what Jesus did. He died. He lived. And we remember also the way that he lived. And he says, come and receive from me forgiveness that you may live and then leave this place and live. Follow what I did in humility, in gentleness, kindness, compassion, care for one another. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me and for us (laughs) that even as we're broken by the example of Jesus, that we're raised to life by what he did. Enable us to know that, to receive that, to rejoice in that. The psalmist says, unto you we lift up our souls. 
Father, fill us with your spirit then that we might live, really live as Jesus did. So, Father, we pray that you would take this bread, this juice, and set it aside in such a way that it would remind us of the servant of the Lord, what he did, how we're to live, and that he's present here with us to help us, to uphold us, to sustain us. For he lives within us. Father, bless us. Even now, I pray, as your servants, great master, fill us that we might serve. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy. We receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners and who desire to live in such a way that is following the example of Jesus. That's true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections can come down this aisle to my left. These two down the aisle to my right. Uh, to my right. Take a piece of bread as you come. Dip it in the cup. And as you do, Remind yourself, I'm the servant of the Lord. Please come. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me, O my Savior, hide till I storm Receive my soul at last. Other refuge have I none. I helpless hang on thee. Evil, leave me not alone. Support and comfort. Trust on thee, stay. All help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head in the shadow of thy wing. Thou, O Christ, are Heal the sick and lead the blind. Just and holy is thy name. I am all unrighteousness. False and full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. 
Grace, grace with Thee is found, grace to cover all my sin. Let the healing streams abound, make and keep me pure See you. 